Welcome back, everybody, to uh, the Carlton AI podcast. Um, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. It's Jacob uh, Levman. So, uh, Jacob, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell, tell them what you're doing. All right. Well, <clears throat> I'm the Canada Research Chair in Bioinformatics. So that sort of combines biology and medical applications with information theory, computers and artificial intelligence applications and things like that. Um, I did a very varied background in my schooling. I, I did computer engineering, um, and then by the time I was at my PhD, I had switched to a medical biophysics degree, which is like medical physics school, or people who build a better MRI machine and things like that. Um, and then I did postdocs in biomedical engineering and then neuroscience. And so uh, after all of that different experience, I ended up uh, getting hired uh, by the Department of Mathematics, Statistics and Computer Science uh, here at St. Francis Xavier University. And uh, it's since split. Now we're just the computer science department. So at any rate, um, what I do is a lot of research that combines those different fields of uh, areas. So that would be medical physics, medical applications, uh, combined with artificial intelligence. Um, so there's, um, you know, there's a lot of different examples. I mean, I've got tons of projects that, that go on in my lab um, on a variety of topics. Uh, they can be all sorts of things. A lot of it is studying the brain. Um, and so we want to build like artificial intelligence applications that help us better uh, interpret or characterize uh, how some people's brains develop differently from other people's brains. And that could theoretically help us inform uh, the medical community about what is abnormal in a given medical condition. It could possibly inspire new therapies for that condition. Um, and it can also just be used as a, like a disease detection technique where you, where you um, are able to identify the presence of a medical condition earlier on in its development, which is generally associated with better outcomes for uh, patients. Um, you know, so, and we're, so we're trying to help improve the standard of patient care um, in, in medical applications. Okay. So um... How exactly did you become interested uh, in AI and uh, specifically, um, I guess, uh, neuroscience and uh, biology as well? Okay, so there's a few topics there. But yeah, I mean, if we start with the AI, uh, I did uh, computer engineering at Waterloo. And so I took, you know, I was interested in artificial intelligence. I took an AI course uh, that was available at the time uh, in undergrad. And then when I went off to a master's degree, I did a master's degree in electrical and computer engineering. Um, and when I was working on that degree, um, I was exposed to more and more uh, learning related uh, technologies. So I started doing a little bit of work in genetic algorithms and other researchers around me um, who were like in groups that I was involved in with for research were doing um, medical application research with machine learning where you try to use a learning algorithm to predict whether or not an exam is representative of a patient with cancer or some other medical condition. And so I started getting really interested in AI applications there. Um, and then when I went off to do medical physics school for my PhD, medical biophysics at, at the University of Toronto, um, the, when I went there, um, basically my PhD thesis was to build machine learning algorithms for these medical physics applications, uh, basically trying to build techniques that could help detect breast cancer from MRI examinations and um, research like that. So that's how I got into, uh, I was doing a lot of AI applications by this point. And then it was uh, when I went to biomedical engineering um, uh, as a postdoc that was in the University of Oxford in England, 
um, I was focused on applications that started seriously focusing on the brain. Um, and so we were looking at the brains of patients with, who had undergone uh, had a stroke recently, and we're trying to do things like use machine learning to predict whether or not um, specific locations in the brain tissue that's been damaged due to stroke is likely to recover or not, right? So we wanted to be able to get an early warning prediction about whether or not um, tissue is, is likely to become permanently damaged and whatnot. And so I started getting more interested in the brain science side of things uh, when I was there, but uh, it really took off in my next postdoc where I went, I did a postdoc uh, fellowship at um, Boston Children's Hospital uh, affiliated with Harvard Medical School um, in the lab of Dr. Emi Takahashi, who is herself a neuroscientist. So this, uh, up until that point in my career, I had done a lot of very different types of technical research and, um, and did a lot of interdisciplinary work trying to help bring them together. And when I went to that lab, I joined a neuroscientist's lab. She didn't have any programming experience, no, no real technical uh, um, side of things. She was just, uh, she's a neuroscientist, which is its own can of worms. It's its own very difficult field of research. And of course, so I, I, I showed up green around the ears in the neuroscience side but uh, learned a lot about how the brain works and how to conduct studies that look at the brain and, and whatnot. And so I've actually, uh, out of that work, done a whole bunch of research that is just neuroscience research that's supported by my computer science skills in terms of big data and whatnot. But a lot of those studies don't even yet have artificial intelligence applications in the study themselves, like in what's been published in the literature. Because just the process of, say, collecting a big data set of a lot of people's brains that you would need to do a good AI study, um, once you've done all of that, you really need a baseline study that, that talks about, hey, what are the characteristics of this data set? What are the obvious things about the brains of this patient and that patient that make them different from these, neuro, these typical patients and, and so on? And so we've done studies that looked at uh, patients with autism, multiple sclerosis, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, a rare condition called moya moya disease, um, and so on. There's a, a, quite a big list. Uh, and so we have a lot, of, a lot of interesting findings in that domain. And my, my work in AI is, is building on, on that, in that um, you know, after having done a more traditional neuroscience study about how to inform the neuroscience community with advanced normal techniques, now that we're adding non-normal techniques, uh, AI techniques, advanced AI techniques, um, that experience is helpful to be able to build algorithms that can then be very informative um, and uh, building upon those types of uh, previous work, as well as uh, you know, hopefully being able to create real world clinical applications, being able to create artificial intelligence approaches to an analysis of a brain that can predict for the radiologist and for the clinician in charge of that patient's care, um, whether that patient is degrading, um, if, they're, if they're being monitored for a condition like multiple sclerosis, or just whether or not that patient has a medical condition that you didn't know they had, um, like being able to predict whether a, a child is developing autism you know, early on before the normal functional tests that are done in the clinic uh, would be able to identify it because there might very well be structural changes to the brain that are detectable earlier on. And we collect so much information that it's difficult to identify, but one of the advantages of artificial intelligence is that it's very good at uh, processing large amounts of data. 
Okay, that's uh, that's really interesting and very informative. So I guess my next question, uh, I guess, is um, instead of I guess moving away from the uh, uh, optimal algorithm side to predict uh, to predict um, uh, structural structural neurosis and other uh, um, medical deficiencies, uh, um, would you would you uh, in your field be be using artificial intelligence to actually uh, re recreate the, the brain as often. To recreate the brain. Well, uh, in, in a way as such. Okay, that's a great question. Um, basically, uh, I'm gonna give a little background before I answer my, my, my specifics part about that. Very broadly, right? Um, the, probably the biggest area of machine learning right now is called deep learning and deep learning is a, a bit of a hand wavy um, attempt by computer scientists to create models of learning that are inspired by the human brain. Um, and they grew out of the original artificial neural networks as the initial uh, developed approach along those lines. And, uh, and those techniques, um, unfortunately, we don't, from the neuro, like from somebody who's actually performed research in a neuroscientist lab, um, we don't actually know how the human brain performs pattern recognition, how it does its learning fundamentally. That's still like an open question for us. Um, so, and we certainly didn't know years ago when the original artificial neural networks were being uh, created more like decades ago. And with, and deep learning has been something that has expanded dramatically over the last 10 years. But even in, during this period, we still have a major knowledge deficit or a knowledge gap in how the human brain actually performs the learning that, that it's so excellent at effectively. Um, that said, uh, although computer scientists had to do a bit of a like, let's try to model how the brain might work, there are various aspects of artificial neural networks and deep learning networks that, do, uh, that are reflective of real features of the human brain. Um, like having uh, tons of connections uh, between different regions of a brain um, deep learning has, has effectively tried to model that by having very complicated learning machines that involve tremendous numbers of connections between different subcomponents of the machine, all of which are able to engage in a certain amount of learning, uh, of a learning procedure. Um, so there is some connection, uh, but there's still a lot we don't, too much we don't know. Um, but one of the things that I'm interested in my research is research projects that try to um, improve, say, deep learning techniques based on inspiration that I was able to acquire from, from a neuroscience perspective. So in that situation, I'd be, you'd be describing something like, um, I mean, have you taken a detailed courses in artificial intelligence in the past? I'm planning to, this semester, actually. Oh, you're starting this semester. Okay, yes. that's, that's great. Um, so, so a deep learning network, for example, um, has... Um, has many, many connections uh, in modeling like a, a brain style learning machine. And there's a lot of different ways that the uh, connections can be tied together. And there are different things called layers in them. And, and we have, you know, some of those layers uh, do things like they literally cut areas of the brain uh, of, the, of the learning machine of the artificial brain um, and, and they, and eliminates them. That one, that example is called a dropout layer and a dropout layer uh, is generally uh, performs the dropout or removal of actual connections in, in the in the modeled brain 
um, it does it randomly. And our, our brain, there's evidence that our brains also have a thing that's kind of similar to dropout in that um, we know that our brains undergo a process called pruning. Uh, and the pruning process involves literally areas of our brain being snipped away and they dissolve and they're gone. Uh, like, you know, they get absorbed into other tissue, but they're not, they're no longer a functioning neural connection there. Right. And so the idea, one of the research ideas that I had that I like for my, having my lab pursue is to be able to uh, try to make uh, dropout layers more like pruning, more like the natural pruning process. Unfortunately, we don't know everything about pruning. So there are still challenges to uh, modify, say, a given layer, like a dropout layer to be more like how our brains actually implement pruning. Um, that's it. It's a challenge. It's an, and it's a neat challenge for trying to combine neuroscience knowledge with the actual fundamental characteristics of how we implement um, models of the brain in terms of artificial neural networks and, and deep learning networks. Okay. So uh, what exactly do you think might be, uh, might be the future of AI? And this could be just in your field or just broadly. Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, in my field, I'd start with my field because I spend a lot of time in my, in, in, <laughs> in, I, um, um, we call them mission critical applications in medic in medicine, um, where you, where you want your, uh, machine to be as incredibly reliable as possible. Uh, you want it to have the highest performance as possible, but those things are kind of normal. It's also extremely important in medical applications that the machine is explainable, that what the machine learned, or even on a per patient basis, if it's predicting something from this one patient now, after it's been trained, the machine should be able to report to the clinicians, I am predicting that this patient is blah, is a patient with autism or something like that, um, because this aspect of their brain, this little, this center of their brain is a little extra, is extra large and the end or the connections that we're able to measure between this area of the brain and that area of the brain are, uh, are, are plentiful or there, and there is a combination of that with you know, with meager connections between this other area of the brain and some other area of the brain or something like that. So, so my kind of research is geared towards being able to answer those questions, given that we don't know yet how to properly characterize autism based on the structural presentation of the brain. So it's, uh, it's, an, it's an open question, but uh, basically I think the future of, of say machine learning and deep learning, a huge aspect of it, is going to be building reliable and explainable artificial intelligence uh, techniques. And some, there are some emerging techniques in deep learning, things like uh, block attention modules and self-attention, um, where the machine can at least report when, it, when it's predicting something on an image, it can at least report where its attention, quote unquote, appears to be, like that its, that its attention is focused on this area of the image instead of that area of the image or whatnot. Um, and that is valuable, um, but it still doesn't answer a lot of questions for us uh, in machine in machine learning applied to medical imaging. If even if you know for with certainty that the machine is basing its prediction on one area of the image, you also want a description. What is it about that area of the image that makes uh, this patient fundamentally different that is the prediction is relying upon? So that could be things like 
how bright or dark the image is in that location. Or if you're looking at that location, maybe it's because the substructure that you're looking at is abnormally big or small on that patient. Or you might have a speckle pattern, right? Or a textural pattern, right? We have these terms, texture patterns in images where you could have like a bunch of funny little dots in one area and that would be a texture. Um, or, you know, there might be some recurring pattern that appears in the image that it's relying upon to make that prediction. Currently, our deep learning machines uh, are not able to report th those bits of information. They're not able to say it is because of this that, uh, and, and right now all we really have are some of the earliest versions of uh, techniques that, uh, that, that really just say where in the image is it basing its prediction on. And that's a good step, but we're not finished. There's a lot more work to do in this domain. Um, as for the field more broadly, I mean, we're talking about artificial intelligence more broadly, like step away from medical applications. Uh, you know, I th the AI field is, is developing rapidly. Um, and you, you'd expect that, uh, that deep learning techniques will just continue <clears throat> improving from standard efforts in that regard. Uh, there's been a lot of push for people to develop ensemble techniques, which are learning techniques where you have many learners all kind of working together and then a method to aggregate their effective predict predictions into like a more statistically reliable prediction. I think there's a lot of uh, benefit in that domain and they'll continue to be valuable. Um, and, um, I think eventually there'll be really big projects that are going to be really cool <clears throat> where we go to, um, backgrounds that are more focused on modeling, um, where, uh, like when I was in Oxford, I was in the physiological understanding through mathematical modeling and analysis group, uh, at, in the biomedical engineering department at the university of Oxford. And so that is a lot of like, let's understand all the details of some physiology, physiological function in the human body, like heart beating or, or breathing or, or the brain functioning. And I think eventually <clears throat> we'll come up with better models for brain function and brain structure. And we'll model them much more in a, in a very, very detailed way that's meant to be as close as humanly possible to our brain, right? To what our brain actually does from all the fundamentals of what we know about the biophysics of the brain. And then once we've done that, then we could build a really amazing deep learning networks that will be slow based on those models. I mean, they'll be slow compared to what we do right now. But once we've done that and there's build the slow ones, we might be able to fill, build smart speed up ones that are truly directly uh, dependent on our fundamental understanding of the way the human brain functions. And so I think that, is a, is a great long-term um, direction for, uh, for artificial intelligence research uh, generally. So it seems like there's a, there's a really bright future for AI. And I guess that's directly parallel to um, um, more and more research towards uh, psychology and neuroscience, right? <laughs> so uh, I guess like, um, uh, I know you've mentioned that there are, there are issues when adding AI into your work because we don't really have quite the final um, uh, fundamental understanding of how the human brain works and their structures and how it interacts with um, a lot of the physiological aspects of, of the body. But um, I guess sort of sort of a different question on, on, on that note-ish, has there been any, um, any other difficulties adding AI to, to your field? And has uh, COVID affected uh, your work at all? Okay, um, COVID, I can start with that. 
uh, it's definitely affected my work, but I feel very lucky. Um, as it turns out, um, I already had, um, you know, uh, recruited a, a team of lab members. And when COVID hit in 2020, um, I just moved everybody to do their work online. And most people had a laptop and, and if they, and I was able to, uh, I, have, I have computers in the lab that we could leave running and people can log in remotely to them. And we have Compute Canada resources that we can connect to remotely. And so I was able to do uh, well. I've got fiber optic internet at home that makes a big difference <laughs> for me. Um, so I was able to do quite well transitioning my team um, to online. And one of my team members uh, who had just like moved to Ontario to like go look for jobs and whatnot had not gotten one. And so I ended up um, being able to hire him to help remotely um, to be kind of like a research programmer that takes a leadership role um, in helping students uh, who, who need one-on-one -on -one help online. Um, and that, that's made a big difference too. So we've been able to overcome COVID challenges pretty well. Um, you know, maybe if we were still in, the, in an in-person environment, uh, the lab would have done better, but maybe not. Maybe we would have done about the same. Uh, I think we weathered that storm quite well, all things considered. Um, challenges with artificial intelligence in my application specifically, uh, probably one of the biggest challenges in medical applications is, is data samples. Artificial intelligence greatly benefits by having a lot of samples and ideally multiple data sets acquired from independent centers that are all fundamentally the same. Like they're all like brain MRI exams of patients with condition, whatever, right? Um, and so ideally you'd have many of those and lots of data in each data set with lots of samples from lots of patients. But in practice, it's very expensive to acquire that information. Um, like just if you were doing a research study and you wanted to hire, a, a, a get a grant and, and use it to pay for people to get their brains imaged, I mean, it's going to cost a thousand bucks or something just to have one brain scan image from one patient. Uh, it might take them an hour with, with the patient in the scanner to rent the scanner and, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And so you imagine if you want a nice big study with a couple thousand patients on that, you're talking a couple million dollars just for the imaging of things. And so uh, often as AI specialists, we rely on uh, collaborators who have collected data sets themselves uh, or, you know, I, uh, um, or we rely on public data sets. And fortunately in brain MRI, um, the quality of publicly available data sets online has been improving a lot over the years. And right now there are some good data sets out there on topics like Alzheimer's disease and, uh, and schizophrenia and autism and whatnot um, that, that we can download and, and conduct studies on and do a, a artificial intelligence enhanced studies on. So that's helpful, but it would be, it is still a barrier that there aren't way more, uh, data samples out there, but there aren't way more medical examinations to be able to access. That would be uh, a big improvement for us and, and a, quite a barrier that, to potentially overcome. Okay, so all things considered with uh, AI's uh, bright future, um, there's probably uh, a lot of students considering that path right now. So would you have any advice for those students? And this can be very broad as well. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I mean, I guess it, it depends. If you're an undergrad student, I, I strongly recommend, I think machine learning is gonna be a hot area for demand for computer science, computer programming skills indefinitely, like for a really long time. And 
so as a result, you know, I strongly recommend taking whatever courses are available to any, uh, any student interested along these lines. Um, as well as, you know, if you're considering graduate school, going to do a master's degree or something like that, uh, find a, a professor at a university who will give you an immersive experience in these. There's nothing that can compare to doing a whole thesis focused on an artificial intelligence application because you spend so much time in the in-depth details of, uh, of that problem. You'll come up with so many skills that are useful broadly. Um, so uh, in my opinion, graduate school gives, gives people that kind of in-depth knowledge, uh, but you'd wanna be focused on, a, you know, on an application of artificial intelligence. And so to do that, you'd need to find an appropriate professor uh, who does conduct research in a, do a domain like that. And, uh, and generally speaking, a, a good way to, you know, get a good graduate school uh, situation for yourself is to, is to approach professors that, that you think you'd be interested in working with them and talk to them about your interests. And, and hopefully the two align. Um, and, and when they do, you know, it, things work out much, much better. Um, it's great when when professors want people who are who are you know inspired to work on uh, on a problem that that they work on uh, because the students like that tend to perform better and and uh, and tend to be more motivated and, and so on. Okay, cool. So all things considered, with uh, how successful you are uh, in terms of AI. Um, is there anything you actually wish you could have done differently when you were younger uh, in terms of AI? Well, I've thought of this many times, actually, because when I was a young graduate student, um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of early developments in deep learning that were done at schools like uh, at the Univers University of Toronto, but in the Department of Computer Science, whereas I was at the University of Toronto in the Department of uh, Medical Biophysics and the Faculty of Medicine. And I don't regret it. I, I, I think that was fantastic. I learned so much medical stuff and I just would not have the medical integration that I have if I hadn't gone and done the education that I chose to do. That said, um, my, my skills in say an area like deep learning uh, would be pr presumably a lot stronger had my, um, my graduate school been involved with researchers who were in the process of developing deep learning techniques like Hinton's group uh, and, and whatnot. So like, had I been in a place like that, I'd have a very different skill set and a very different experience set. And I wouldn't be here in this interview talking about how we're gonna try to figure out how to make pruning model better in deep learning algorithms, you know, uh, and whatnot. But I might have other skills that are more, you know, the fundamentals of the computer program that I, that, I mean, I've got plenty, but I would have presumably more from having been educated by some of the great, you know, uh, minds of that field. Um, or, uh, you know, or maybe in like uh, Joshua Bengio's group or, uh, or whatnot. Um, so so there, there are examples like that, like in hindsight, well, if I had done something differently, I would have more skills in one area and less skills in another area. Um, and I can't, I, I, I don't regret doing any, all the medical stuff that I did. I, I, it's been fantastic for me and I find it very, very intellectually stimulating. Um, so, so no regrets. Uh, that said, I just, I know, you know, I know that if I'd done my education differently, that I would have a different education and I'd have different skill sets and those skill sets would presumably be beneficial to me one way or another. So, um, you know, this is how the cookie crumbled in this situation. 
Well, it's great that you don't regret anything. And uh, only, <laughs> I guess we'll never know what would have happened unless uh, we were living in some parallel universe. <laughs> but, uh, I guess, um, so lastly, I would I would want to ask, would you like to add anything else? Oh, um, I can't think of anything immediately. You asked a lot of interesting questions. That was, uh, it was very uh, fun to be able to answer all those questions from my background. But uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. Okay, well, thank you, Jacob, and uh, thank you for being uh, being a part of uh, Carlton uh, AI Society's uh, podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure.